0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, we are beginning our new series today, as Chris mentioned, our series on what's going to be our new statement of faith. What we're calling, if you've got one of these booklets with you, what we're calling the story of what we believe. And, and next week, we're going to be diving into what we've called the short version of that story, what you can find on pages four and five in this little booklet. But before we, we look at the short version in detail next week, I want to just spend our time today thinking about the first couple of sentences, and I'm going to read those for you. If you don't have a booklet, don't worry, they're on the bulletin as well. If you don't have a bulletin, you're out of luck, you just got to Listen. But I'm going to read these first few sentences because this is what I want to again focus on today. This is what it says It says, The story of our faith in God is a story of God's faithfulness to us, it is a story told by God Himself in the Bible. The story of our faith in God is a story of God's faithfulness to us. It is a story told by God himself in the Bible. And I want to focus today on this word, story, because if you've been around the block a little bit, this word, story, isn't really a word that is traditionally associated with doctrinal statements, with statements of faith. Traditionally, a statement of faith is a summary of what someone or some church or some organization believes, not a story. So why have we, in our attempt to summarize our faith as a church, why have we emphasized so much that it is a story? After all, that's what we're calling it. The story of what we believe. That's what we call it in this short version five, six, seven times. The story of our faith in God. Is a story of God's faithfulness to us. It is a story told by God Himself in the Bible. So why have we emphasized so much the fact that this is a story? And let me just upfront, before we get into this, let me just give you three reasons. First off, it computes. In our day and age, people are less and less concerned with the brute facts and more concerned with how the facts fit together. If you're interested in why that is, in the, in that, the philosophy behind that, it's actually because of a shift in our culture from a, from a, a, a trend of evaluating truth based on correspondence how facts correspond to our experience of the world. It's a shift from evaluating truth based on correspondence to evaluating truth based on coherence. Again, how the facts fit together. The philosophy behind it. But this computes. You're not, you don't tell people anymore just the, the brute facts, rattling off a list of propositions, the, the truths that we hold to be self-evident. Instead, you tell a story. That's what makes sense to people. It computes. Second, though, it communicates. Story is what captures the imagination. It's what captivates the heart. Try to think of the last time you were captivated by a shopping list. Chances are it was a while ago. Unless you go shopping very often for fun things. We, we only go for groceries, so chances are it was a while ago. But, but when was the last time you were captivated by a story? An hour ago? Five minutes ago? This is why in business, there, there's a trend now that, that if you're going to be a successful salesperson, they say, don't try and sell the product. Learn how to tell the story. It's because a story is what communicates. Third, though, let me say that most importantly, story, more than the traditional list of doctrinal points that you would find in a a doctrinal statement, in a statement of faith, a story better captures, more fully captures what our faith is all about because it better captures what the Bible is all about. And that's what this statement of faith, this story of what we believe is meant to be. It's meant to be a summary of our faith as defined by the Bible. And at its heart, the Bible is a story. Which is why one author dares to speak of the fairy tale of the gospel, where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos, where the battle, he says, goes ultimately to the good who live happily ever after. With, of course, he says, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for the Bible is that it is true. That it not only happened, he says, once upon a time, but has kept happening ever since and is still happening today. So to come back to the original question, we've emphasized so much that this is a story. We've we've rewritten this in story form because we're trying to be more biblical. Biblical because we're, we're trying to capture both the doctrinal content of our faith that we have always held so dear, and a little also, capture also a little of how the, that content is presented in the context of the greatest story ever told. But for some of us, we maybe don't think of the Bible as a story. We think about it as a book of commands or promises of of poetry or prophecy. We think about it as as a collection of letters of all different sorts or, or as a book made up of a lot of little stories. And yet, while... It is, each of those in part, I want to suggest today that it's, it's more than anything else written to be read as one big story. And that's what I want to spend just a few minutes on today, just a few minutes looking at the big story of the Bible. Before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're entering into a new chapter in our church's history and thinking about who we are and why we exist and beginning with what we hold most dear, the truths of our faith, because, because they're truths about you and your son and your spirit. I pray today that we would see them, though, see the content of our faith with fresh eyes, as we see it even today within the context of your story. And it's in the name of the one that story is all about that I pray, amen. Well, the story is told of an ancient city in the Roman province of Libya named Silene. And next to this city of Silene was a pool that some described as vast as a sea. And in this pool, there lived a dragon. Its scales were impenetrable. Its wrath was unbearable. And if you got close enough to it, its breath would kill you. And this dragon plagued that city of Silene and all the countryside surrounding it, gradually growing in boldness and even once uh, approaching the very gates of that city. So that eventually the city folk, uh, eventually they uh, attempted to appease the dragon by paying it tribute. So, by by decree of the king, two sheep a day were led out to the slaughter before this beast, until it became apparent that the sheep were no longer going to satisfy. And so again, by decree of the king, each day one citizen of that city was chosen by Lot to offer themselves as a sacrifice on behalf of the rest. It was their own little hunger games until the one citizen that was chosen happened to be the king's only daughter. But having already sentenced so many to death, the king couldn't even with all the gold in his kingdom ransom back his daughter. And so he dressed her in her finest as a a bride for her bridegroom and sent her off to her fate before the dragon. But surrendered to fate, this girl found herself rather in the hands of a loving God. Because at that moment, surrendered to, to this dragon came galloping up a a Roman soldier, a a Christian, actually, by the name of George. And George, I'm not making that up, that was his name. (laughs) And George, George decided, hearing her story, that he would slay the dragon and get the girl. And he did just that, according to this story. And this is the story of a man who came to be known as St. George, the patron saint of England, whose red cross adorns their flag. The patron saint of Georgia, the country, not the state. And the patron saint of a number of others throughout the world. He's one of the most venerated saints of church history, St. George. But some, some ha- have, have suggested, they've pointed out the fact that this is also the story of Perseus, who if you're up to date on your Greek mythology was the son of Zeus, who who rode on the back of Pegasus and rescued the beautiful Andromeda from a similar fate before a sea dragon named Catus. And so it's been suggested that the one story is just a ripoff of the other. And for all we know of this St. George, this particular part of the story probably is. I don't imagine he went slaying dragons as he just happened upon these damsels in distress to slay them and get the girl. I don't imagine it was true. But scholarship has failed to see that the story of Perseus seems to be a ripoff as well. As much as scholars would like to say that this is the beginning, this is the, the first of the, the princess and the dragon motifs that, that pepper history around the globe, there seems to be a story of a much more true and ancient, a much more true and ancient dragon. Dragon who was slayed by a knight who was much more true and ancient, who decided he would go after a much more true and ancient bride. Because this is the story of the Bible. Slay the dragon, get the girl. This is the story of the Bible. And this is what I want to look at today. Today that it's the Bible that lies behind each of these myths that pepper our world, whether it's Shrek or Super Mario Brothers. The princess and the dragon motif harkens back to a story begun by God. It's the story of how God took it upon himself to send his son to slay the dragon and get his girl. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, this is what I want to suggest to you today is at the heart of it. It's a rescue mission from beginning to end of a lover for his beloved, of a, of a husband for his betrothed, of Jesus for his bride from the hands of that ancient serpent, the devil himself. And there's a a number of ways you can trace this storyline out, one of which you can do by simply looking at the Bible's bookends. And I want to do this with you now. Uh, See, any good story ends where it begins. Through conflict and climax, its resolution brings a reader back to where they began because any good story is redemptive. Any good story is restorative. It's like a, an episode of Bonanza. The, the camera sort of pans into this, this sleepy panderosa ranch. But not too long after, in rides an outlaw who upsets the peace. And yet by the end of the episode, the outlaw has been ousted and the peace has been restored. And beginning to end, the Bible isn't too different. Because it's a really good story. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the opening chapters of Genesis. We're not going to be reading through this. This is going to be a little different. But, but if you want to turn there, I'm just going to be just pointing you to a few of, uh, of the pieces of where this story begins. So again, the opening chapters of Genesis. And I'll just briefly show you what I mean. To begin, Genesis 1 recounts God's creation of the heavens and the earth which it says in verse two was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And this whole chapter is about God bringing form to the formless, filling the void, and bringing light out of the darkness. That's pretty much the the sum of it. And as the climax of creation, he makes humanity in his image. That's down in verse 27 to do what God does by reigning in God's stead. Some of you know I've, I've talked about this before at, at points. He creates humanity in his image to do what he does in reigning in his stead. And and you can get that. It says right after he he creates them in his image that he blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what it means, means to be made in the image of God. See, humanity was made to reign in God's stead on God's behalf. So the Bible is a story about our rain. It's about humanity's place in God's world. We were created to be vice regents. We were created to be little kings and little queens underneath the big king. And in chapter 2, when the camera pans in, we see what this rain is all about. It's about a garden in Eden, planted by God himself, into which he places man and commissions man Chapter 2, verse 15, to to work it and keep it, which basically means that that man was put there, that our reign is about expanding God's reign. It's about taking God's garden, what what he's already weeded and seeded and brought under his control, it's about taking that and expanding it outward until it encompasses the whole world. That's what we're meant to do. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It's about expanding God's reign on earth. The story of the Bible is about our reign in God's garden. But notice also that it's at the same time about marriage. It's thrown in there at the beginning of this story. It's about marriage because while God commissions man, he makes woman to be man's helper. And that's the end of chapter 2. So we're supposed to do it together. That's the implication. And we're to do it first, to expand God's reign in God's world. We're to do it first. We're to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done first in our relationships with one another. That's part of expanding God's reign. The is about our reign in God's garden and doing that together, man and wife, men and women. But something goes wrong, doesn't it? Something always goes wrong has to. That's what makes a good story. Something goes wrong, and you can read it in chapter 3. So chapter 3, enter the dragon. It says, now the, the serpent was more crafty than any, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the first thing that this dragon does, that this serpent does, he goes after the girl. He gets the woman to doubt God's goodness. And whether it's really worth reigning for God when she, she could instead reign for herself. And all the lies that, that the snake is, is feeding the woman, ironically, the guy is swallowing because he's standing right next to her, just standing by. And so they together doubt, again, the goodness of God and doubt whether it's better to reign for God or reign for Themselves and they choose the latter so that the dragon is the one who ruins the marriage. He's the one who ultimately gets them kicked out of the garden and prevents them from reigning for God because God no longer reigns first in their relationship to one another. It's a story. It all unravels. The dragon is the one who undoes it. He undoes the story. He's the outlaw that disturbs the peace. But even here, even here in history's darkest hour, there's a glimmer of hope. Because you remember what what God says to the snake, right? You remember what he says, that, that even in the curse that God pronounces over the snake, he speaks of the day of another man who would come to do what the first man should have done to begin with, crush the serpent's head. And the question in the background of the entire Bible is who's going to slay the dragon and who's going to get the girl? But as the Bible unravels, it's not just about this girl, but about all who come from her. She's named Eve, right? Which means life. So that the question is, who will show up and secure life? It's a question of who would show up and save all humanity. And the rest of the Bible is where we find out that it's Jesus. That it's Jesus. Because in the end, Jesus is the one who slays the dragon. And Jesus is the one who gets his church, the girl. And because the Bible is like any good story, where it begins is where it ends. We've looked about three minutes, the first three chapters of the Bible. We're not going to turn there. We're not going to take the time to unpack it, but let me encourage you that this afternoon you should go home and having looked at the first three chapters of the Bible, read through that lens the last three chapters, which in a lot of ways just show how the peace that was disturbed by the outlaw at the beginning of time is eventually restored in the end. Starts in Revelation twenty, with Jesus slaying the dragon. I mean, slayed the beast and slayed the false prophet. If you know the the characters of that book, that eventually he slays the dragon as well. Can't stand before him. No one can. Jesus slays the dragon, and then and then he he and then he he in the end he. He after that in chapter twenty one is his marriage to the bride, a church. And then, if you read on, it's 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 a church who in chapter twenty two is welcomed again into the garden of God, which is conspicuously absent in so much of the Bible. That it's only at the end that we ever get back to where we began. But there it is, right where it should be. And how does the vision close? If you make it all the way to verse 5 in chapter 22, it says at the end that those who make it there will reign forever and ever, just like we were supposed to from the very beginning. You see, at its heart, the Bible is a story. The Bible is the greatest story because it's our story. It's everyone's story. The Bible is what, what captures the heart, captivates the imagination, which is why the elders have tried, as we've, as, we've, as we've been rewriting our statement of faith, we've tried to capture that a bit in this little booklet. Not only because it computes and communicates in our in our postmodern age but because it captures what the bible is all about the fairy tale of the gospel with of course one crucial difference from all other fairy tales before which is that the claim made for this one is that it's true We're going to look next week at how we've tried to summarize the story in the rest of this short version. But for now, let me just, let me just even, um, from this brief sketch of the story of the Bible, let me just encourage you in three ways. I hope today that you walk away encouraged first that what's ahead is better than what's behind. And better than whatever you're in the middle of. I don't know all of it. I know a lot of it. I've learned a lot of it. That a lot of us are going through a lot of things. But let me encourage you that what's ahead is better than what's behind. It doesn't matter what you're facing. It doesn't matter whether you brought it upon yourself or somebody else did it. It doesn't matter if it's if it's your fault or if it's because of the fall. It doesn't matter trial or tribulation. It doesn't matter hardship or harassment. It doesn't matter adversity or whether you're face to face with the adversary himself. What's ahead is better than what's behind because in the end, we end up back at the beginning. Second, in a similar vein, I hope you walk away encouraged that the serpent does not have the final word. Last week, just about every major news outlet covered a story from Texas of a man who was bitten in the hand by the head of a snake he had just decapitated. You can look it up. It was June 6th or something. Every major news outlet. And it's not unlike what we face today. A Satan has already been decapitated. The great ancient snake has already been undone, and yet he still has the will to bite. That man who was bitten in Texas ended up in a coma for five days. But let me tell you, in the end, he wasn't the one who died. And let me encourage you that in the end, the serpent doesn't have the final word. He's backed into a corner. He's doing a lot of damage. But he can only go so far. And this ending of the story that's already been written will soon and someday be read out over all of history. So let me encourage you. The serpent doesn't have the final word. What's it? Ahead is better than what's behind. Serpent doesn't have the final word. Lastly, I hope you're encouraged that this is a better story than anything being shoveled by the world. We can all push aside the fairy tales that we grew up with, but we're all longing for a fairy tale that's true. And this is the one. This is the one that lies behind it all. This is the one behind both both St. George and Perseus, that it was really a story about Jesus. It's a better story than any story being shoveled by the world. And I hope it's better for you, a, 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 better, a better explanation of what's to come, a better explanation of where we come from, a better explanation of the world in which we live. It's a better story. And I hope it's a better story both for you and for you to share. So who's the one person? Who's the one person God's going to put in front of you this week that needs to hear this as much as you do? Because we're going to be a church following Jesus by making Jesus followers. And that starts with an invitation to join the journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that our journey doesn't stop here. Our journey through the Bible doesn't stop here. As much as we can step back, we can dive in more. I pray that as we do over these next weeks, as we get into the grit of this story, as we see the the content of our faith within the, the context of this narrative, I pray we would see it like we've never seen it before all for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H bibleorg